Well, I encourage you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, we're going to be looking this morning at verses 14 through 23 of Philippians chapter 4. Let me read for us this morning from this passage. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia... No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the end of the book of Philippians, and as we look at Paul's final final words, Father, we ask that by your spirit, you would speak to us. That you would tangibly speak to our minds and our hearts that we might be encouraged, challenged, convicted this morning, and that our devotion to Jesus Christ might be greater than before. Do this, Lord, for the glory of Christ's name and for the good of your church. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. Well, this is the last sermon that we will be doing in the book of Philippians. We started, I don't know how long ago we started, Um, But it's taken quite a while, so thank you for your patience. And I'll just say up front this morning that we're actually going to be talking about money. Specifically, money in regards to Christ's global mission in the world. Now I realize money tends to be a sensitive subject, especially for pastors to speak about to members in a church. Partly due to the fact that the church, there has been points in history where pastors have been financially corrupt. There have been abuses in regards to money. And not only that, there's also this thing we call the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all. But there are men who use the Bible to manipulate and to take advantage of people. That if they give, the Lord will bless them more and more with wealth and prosperity and health. And so I know that a lot of pastors, faithful pastors, tend to avoid this subject. Or at least when they do bring it up, they always will intro it by saying, we never talk about money here. So they're very careful about it. And I've just come to the conviction that I don't want to fall prey to that. Because 
The Bible isn't ashamed about talking about money. The Apostle Paul's not ashamed about talking about money. Jesus isn't ashamed about talking about money. In fact, Jesus spoke about money more than anything else. And it's partly because Jesus understood how we use our money is the thermometer in determining our devotion to Jesus Christ or our devotion to the things of this world. And here in these verses, we learn a little bit about the believers in Philippi and how they lived in regards to their resources and the cause of Christ in the world. And so the first point that I want us to see in verses 14 to 15 is simply this. We need to be like the Philippian church in regards to their commitment to the cause of Christ with their resources. We need to be, as many people say, a Berean church, right? When Paul goes to Berea, he, he speaks to the people about the gospel there, and they're constantly examining to the scriptures to see that what he says is true. We need to be a Berean church, but we also need to be a Philippian church. So look at verses 14, where Paul says, It was kind of you to share my trouble. Now that word yet is tied to what Paul states in verses 10 to 13. Though they had revived their concern for him, as he mentions in verse 10, he had learned contentment in all circumstances. Whether in loss or gain, Paul learned the secret of contentment, yet... He says here he's still thankful for the fact that they shared his trouble. They've participated in Paul's struggles. We see this at the very beginning of the letter in chapter 1 verse 7 where he says, For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel." Paul's in prison in Rome and there in Philippi, and he's saying, you've, you've partaked with me in grace, in my imprisonment, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And of course, the way in which they did this was by sending Epaphroditus to care for Paul's needs, emotionally, spiritually, and materially. But not only that, Paul alludes to the fact that they were the only church who partnered with him by financially supporting him. Look at verse 15. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when, when Paul says beginning of the gospel, he, he's simply saying, when I first came to Philippi and brought the gospel to you, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. And that word partnership there has the, the idea of fellowship, but, but here it's Paul's clearly using it in regards to finances. No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. We tend to think Paul is a hero of the church, but that wasn't so during Paul's ministry. Over and over again, Paul has to convince people that he's actually an apostle. And so this church in Philippi, which was located in Macedonia, Paul says is the only church that entered into partnership with him. 
You, you can read about Paul's experience in Macedonia in Acts chapter 16 through chapter 17. Now Macedonia, I, I didn't have time to do this, I was hoping to get you a map, but Macedonia covers a significant part of modern day Greece today. And so after he leaves Philippi, in Acts 17.1, he, he passes through Amphipolis and Apollomian. And then he reaches Thessalonica. And he spends a short period of time there, possibly three weeks, because we're told that he entered into the synagogue on the Sabbath three times, which most likely means he, he entered there for three weeks on the Sabbath and tried to reason with the Jews about Christ. So he spends a short period in Thessalonica, and, and bef- after that, he then heads to Athens, which would have taken him out of Macedonia at that point. And so after he leaves Macedonia, this church in Philippi is the only church that partnered with him in giving and receiving. Now, Paul's not taking shots at the other churches. He's simply commending the Philippi church for their example. Now, in verse 16, he further expands just on how committed they were to Paul and the mission God had given him. He says in verse 16, Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So so not only were you the only church that partnered with me when I left Macedonia, but even while I was in Macedonia, after I left Philippi and came to Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. See, from the very beginning, these believers are eager to help and support Paul. He comes to Philippi. He, he leads many of them to the Lord. And then he moves on to Thessalonica. And while he's there, they sent help to care for him more than once in a very short period of time. In other words, they were from the very beginning committed to the Apostle Paul's ministry. Remember how Paul begins his letter in Philippians 1, verses 3 to 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So from the very beginning of their salvation, they're putting their money toward the advance of the gospel by caring for Paul's needs. Why? Is it mainly because they like Paul and care about him? Well, partly, but it's more than that. They've been recipients of God's saving grace in Jesus Christ. And now they're committed in seeing that message of God's saving grace get out to the rest of the world. They want to partner with Paul in the mission of God to make Christ known among the nations. They're a mission-minded, gospel-advancing church. They've got a global perspective, and they're investing their resources in that mission. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 8, which I read for you earlier, Paul makes mention of the church in Macedonia and their generosity And there's no doubt he's referring, at least in part, to the church and Philippi. This is what he says. 
We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So, so God's grace has been poured out, the church, poured out upon the churches of Macedonia. How? For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, so they're, they're abounding in joy, and their extreme poverty, they're poor, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So their abundance and joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means. That's important. As I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. Hear this begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They're begging the Apostle Paul to be a part of caring for the relief of the saints by sending money, by sacrificially giving of their resources. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. See, this church is a church worth imitating. The local church isn't a social club. It's God's embassy on earth. And we've been given a task as his church to spread our king's name across the nations. And the primary means by which we do this is partnering and raising up worthy and qualified missionaries in seeing that gospel spread to the nations. One of the great evidences that you've been transformed by the gospel is that you give of your resources for the advance of the gospel that saved you. We're prone to think that we can determine someone's level of commitment to Jesus based upon how much they pray or read their Bible. But possibly the best way to determine how much one is committed to Jesus is by how much one sacrificially gives towards his cause in the world. Think of Jesus' words in Matthew 6, 19-21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you treasure, your heart will be there. If someone were to look at your bank statement, would they conclude that this person is truly dedicated to the church of Jesus Christ and the cause of Christ in this world? We all have a different level of wealth, but are you giving according to your means to the cause of Christ? We're not supporting right now in our church any missionaries, though, Lord willing, by the end of this year, we will be. And I hope that we will take the example of these believers in Philippi and joyfully and sacrificially give of our resources in order that the gospel that has changed us might be proclaimed to others throughout the world. 
I hope we're not content with the bare minimum, but that we eagerly and sacrificially give of our wealth for the sake of Jesus Christ and his renown. That we would be like Jesus, who as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that, by, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Church, God doesn't need our resources. In fact, our resources are already his that he's entrusted to us. But he invites us. He invites us to participate in his global purposes. It's not that we have to, but that we get to. And every sacrifice we make with the resources we have, we'll discover that it was worth it. Which leads to my second point. Our financial sacrifices are worth making. And we see this in verses 17 to 18. Specifically, in verse 17, what Paul seeks for them, the believers in Philippi, and also what Paul understands their financial support to truly be in verse 18. So first, verse 17, what Paul seeks for them. This will reveal how our financial sacrifices are worth making. Look at verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Just like in verse 11, Paul wants to reassure them that he's not saying these things because he wants a gift from them or is in need of another gift. But rather, what he's seeking is the fruit that increases to their credit. What does Paul mean by that? Well, the idea is that Paul's not primarily concerned with their generosity in regards to supporting him. But rather... That in their generous giving, the fruit of their giving will increase in such a way that God will reward them. The imagery seems to be um, that the, the heavenly accounts of these believers are overflowing as a result of their sacrificial giving because God is honoring their sacrifice. Paul's encouraging them by by telling them that their sacrificial giving will produce a heavenly harvest of fruit. Really, Paul's speaking of something no different than Jesus' words in Matthew 6, 19-21, which I read. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth, moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Church, this is partly why our sacrificial giving is worth making, because in the end, we'll discover we've actually gained. You know, when you read the Bible, God never calls us to sacrifice as an end in itself. God never calls us to sacrifice as an end in itself, but rather he calls us to sacrifice for a greater reward. Always. Look at every time Jesus calls his people to die to self, he says, because why? You will truly live. 
Sacrifice in the biblical worldview is never an end result, but a means to something greater. Which reminds me of Jim Elliot's famous words, that great missionary who died for the cause of Christ. He is no fool to give what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. Friends, there's not a penny in the bank that you will forever keep. But there is heavenly reward. There is glory to come in which we cannot lose. But there's also a second reason for why our sacrifice is worth making. And it's what Paul understands their financial support to truly be. Look at verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul makes clear that he's received full payment and more. Literally, that word more is abounding. He's abounding because of the generosity of these believers in Philippi. He's received these gifts from Epaphroditus. But how does he describe the gifts? He calls it a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, what should come to your mind when you read this is the Old Testament sacrificial system. A fragrant offering is in reference to the burnt offering in which the offering was consumed so that an aroma would rise up to God as an acceptable and pleasing sacrifice. The idea fundamentally was that God was pleased with the generous spirit of his people. Remember, they brought their own sacrifice of their own resources, and they offered it up to God as an act of worship. And Paul's using that Old Testament imagery to capture truly what these believers are doing when they support Paul financially. They're fundamentally worshiping God before anything else. Their supporting of Paul is primarily an act of worship to God. And this is why sacrificial giving is worth making. Because it honors the Lord. It's an act of worship to the Lord by which he is pleased. You know, it's important we grasp this, that the biblical worldview, the, the biblical f- framework, never separates the horizontal from the vertical. Never separates the horizontal from the vertical. In other words, how you live towards others reveals how you live toward God. If you're generous with others, you are generous to God. If you are not generous to others, you're not generous to God. Their horizontal care for Paul was a vertical act of worship to God. The Bible doesn't separate these two things. That's why the scriptures make clear that when you sin against another human, you're also sinning fundamentally against God. When you do good for another person, you're doing good toward God. 
Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 25, 31 to 46, this imagery of the final day of judgment where he says, when the Son of Man comes in, in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Friends, our financial sacrifice is worth making because there is great reward from God. He honors his children's sacrifice, but also because it pleases God. It's a means by which we worship God. God. I know that many of you give willingly and cheerfully, and a part of your giving goes towards this building, maintaining it, trying to update it, going towards the bills that we have to pay, and, and also caring for Gracie and I by paying my salary. And I'm so thankful that, that, that we're able to, that, that you're able to allow me to pastor full time so that I can give my full time and my full energy to the study of God's word. But I truly hope that the driving force, the deepest motivation for your giving would fundamentally be worship before it's ever caring for our needs. That as you give, you would understand that you're worshiping God if you give from an eager and joyful heart. There's a reason we, we pass around the offering plates in this church. Because we believe that not only is the time that God has given us a means by which we worship him, not only are our, our lives to be given to him in worship, but also the financial blessing that he has given us. We are to give in worship to him. So we want to strive to be like this Philippian church in their joy-filled sacrificial giving for the cause of Christ. And we also need to know that our financial sacrifices are worth making. Thirdly, I want us to see this, that our God will meet our needs. Our God will meet our needs. Look at verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. 
In other words, Paul believes that God will honor our sacrifice by meeting our every need we have. Not every want, but every need. Not what we think we need, but what we actually need. The idea here is this. God will be generous to those who are generous. Just as they were generous to Paul, so God will be generous to them by providing for their needs. And how will he do this? According to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The riches of God are infinite. It is what he himself possesses. He lacks nothing. The wealth of our eternal God who dwells in glory has made his riches available in Christ Jesus. This isn't prosperity gospel. This is Paul telling these believers that in their sacrifice, God will meet their daily needs because he within himself has infinite resources. And this isn't just referring to our, our financial needs, but every need. And notice that these riches that God has come to us in Christ Jesus. God's provision for us come to us because of Christ Jesus and his work on our behalf. Christ has secured our redemption and all the benefits, all the promises that come with that redemption. This promise is for the one who is in Christ. It is for his children. And this truth leads Paul right after verse 19 and verse 20 to break out into doxology. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. In light of God's faithfulness to his children, Paul can't help but break out into praise of God. Really, the idea here is this. The one who supplies gets the glory and praise. God is the one who supplies. He is the one, therefore, who is worthy of all praise and glory. He is faithful to his children. He keeps his promises. He will meet our needs. And knowing that he will meet our needs, that should only motivate us more to be more generous. Now in verses 21 through 23, Paul gives his final greetings to these believers. He tells them to greet every saint in Christ Jesus. He, he says that the brothers who are with him uh, greet them as well. And, and all the saints in Rome greet them. And this, this idea of greet, greet is to engage in hospitable recognition of one another. And it's important for us to just to sit here and think about that. To engage in hospitable recognition of one another. I want to encourage you that when you come here on a Sunday morning to gather with the saints, that you would come with the mindset that you are eager to greet one another, to acknowledge the other, to see the person who's by themselves, and to acknowledge them, to recognize them, to greet them in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul calls them to greet one another, and he 
speaks of the brothers as well who are with him, most likely referring to those who were traveling with him, but also the saints in Rome. But then he says something very profound. He says, especially those of Caesar's household. Remember, Paul has just spoken of their financial sacrifice in giving towards the cause of Christ in the world. And Paul's now testifying that though he's imprisoned, the gospel has penetrated into the household of Caesar. In other words, Paul's reminding them that their giving and support isn't in vain. The gospel is spreading. It's moving forward. It's taking people's lives. This is the ramifications of what happens when we give of our resources to the cause of Christ. People in Caesar's household embrace a Jewish Messiah. And finally, Paul ends with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That is, may the grace of God strengthen you in your inner being, the inner man. So what we discover here is we come full circle. The letter began by Paul with grace to you. And it ends with grace be with you. In other words, Paul has surrounded everything he has said in this letter in grace. To remind us that all we have and all that we accomplish and all that we can become is of grace. It's the grace of Jesus that saves rebellious sinners and makes them a part of God's family, set apart for his purposes in the world. It's grace that initiates and sustains Christian fellowship in the gospel and together seeing that gospel advance in our world. It's grace that enables believers to rejoice in the advance of the gospel even when people have false motives. It's grace that empowers Christians to believe that to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's grace that enables Christians to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's grace that empowers Christians to stand unified in the gospel, even in the midst of opposition. It's grace that empowers Christians to live selfless, humble lives that seek the interests of others over their own interests, and in so doing, follow the example of their humble Savior Jesus. It's grace that enables Christians to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, to do all things without grumbling. It's grace that keeps Christians holding fast to the word of life, word of life that they might shine like stars in the universe. It's grace that enables Christians to believe that all their past achievements are as nothing in comparison to knowing the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. It's grace that strengthens us to want to live in his resurrection power, share in his sufferings, become like him in his death. It's grace that keeps us in our pursuit of forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, that upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's grace that humbles us and enables us to follow the worthy examples among us that we might imitate them as they imitate Christ. 
It's grace that brings reconciliation when there is disagreement between two sisters in the Lord. It's grace when we're able to rejoice in the Lord always despite our circumstances or when we walk in gentleness and give ourselves over to prayer rather than anxiety. It's grace when our minds are renewed by thinking upon all that which, that which is lovely and worthy of praise. It's grace empowering us to find contentment in Christ no matter our circumstances, whether in loss or in gain. It's grace at work when we give eagerly, joyfully, and sacrificially for the renown of Christ's name in our world. Church, it's all of grace. And as we end Philippians, hear this from me. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that there is gold to be found there, treasure that we might know you and walk in your ways, that we might live in a manner worthy of your gospel. So Lord, I pray that you would do that in our hearts this morning, that we would resolve this morning to be all the more eager, devoted to Jesus and his renown across the nations. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.